This episode of We the People is brought to you by The Great Courses. Our wonderful listeners on these We the People podcasts may be interested in an absolutely thrilling lecture series that I created with The Great Courses. It's called Privacy, Property, and Free Speech, Law and the Constitution in the 21st Century. Uh, to my delight, The Great Courses has created a limited-time offer for our listeners. If you order from eight of The Great Courses' best-selling courses, including the absolutely riveting Privacy, Property, and Free Speech, uh, at up to 80% off the original price. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash people. That's thegreatcourses.com slash people. And now, on to our show. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcast. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution, on a nonpartisan basis. And today we continue our series of blockbuster podcasts that review the week's big decisions at the Supreme Court, creating a dr constitutional drumbeat of analysis uh, as we head up to the end of this historic term at the end of June. On Monday, June 8th, the Supreme Court handed down a major ruling about the separation of powers and foreign affairs. We're also expecting a decision very soon in a case about housing discrimination and the government's power to address it. And joining us to analyze these cases are two of the leading scholars in America and uh, even more importantly, two leading members of the National Constitution Center's Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board, which with the sponsorship of the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society is creating the best interactive constitution on the web and sponsoring a series of traveling town hall debates across America that will transform constitutional discourse. Erwin Chemerinsky is the founding dean and distinguished professor of law and Raymond Pryke professor of First Amendment law at the University of California, Irvine School of Law. And Richard Epstein is Lawrence A. Tisch professor of law and director of the Classical Liberal Institute at the New York University School of Law. All right, gentlemen, let us jump right into it, and let's begin with the absolutely fascinating and rich Zivotofsky case. Uh, Erwin, can you give us a brief summary of the uh, issue in the case and what the arguments on both sides were? Of course. There's a decades-long dispute between the Israelis and Palestinians concerning the sovereignty over Jerusalem. Since the establishment of Israel in 1948, American presidents all taken the position of neutrality over which sovereign controls Jerusalem. In 2002, Congress passed a bill with a section that was titled United States Policy with Respect to Jerusalem is the Capital of Israel. Among other things, this section directed the State Department to record Israel as the place of birth on the passport of a citizen born in Jerusalem if the parents or guardians of a United States citizen born in Jerusalem requested this. President Bush signed a bill into law, but he issued a signing statement expressing the view that this was an unconstitutional encroachment on presidential power. The Obama administration had taken the same position. Menachem Zivotofsky was born in 2002 in Jerusalem to parents who are United States citizens. Zivotofsky's mother applied for a United States passport and wanted to list his birth, place, birth, place of birth as Jerusalem, Israel. This is exactly what the statute allows. But the State Department issued the passport listing only Jerusalem as a place of birth. And the question then is, is the statute passed by Congress constitutional, or is it an impermissible encroachment on presidential power? 
Great. Thanks so much for that. Very helpful summary. Richard, can you describe the constitutional arguments on both sides? What did uh, Justice Kennedy hold for the majority? And what were the dissenting opinions of Justice Scalia and Thomas? Um, well, this is a very complicated case, and I think the answer is I can describe them, but not with a way which will persuade anybody, including myself. But essentially, the way in which the argument is made for Justice Kennedy, which is the chief opinion, is as follows. He says, look, um, there are two things that are going on here. One is that it is quite clear that uh, when you start thinking about uh, foreign relationships, executive power has to be exercised in a unitary and effective way, because otherwise we cannot deal in any real responsible form. Um, with other nations in shifting, fast-moving situations. So uh, the argument is, if you start to think about the distribution of separation of powers, the executive is the person who's supposed to be bold and decisive, and the Congress is supposed to be the reflective organization. And then what he does is he starts to go back and he starts to look at some of the textual arguments. And this is where the case gets embarrassingly thin on both sides, because what first happens is, he says, you know, the president of the United States has the power to receive ambassadors. And, well, who else would have the power to receive ambassadors? But from that, they then draw the implication that the president of the United States has the exclusive and conclusive and preclusive power uh, to decide whether or not to recognize a foreign nation and the terms and conditions under which that recognition should take place. And therefore, it follows from this particular argument uh, that the president and only the president has the inherent power to decide whether or not a particular passport should issue with a particular designation. Because make no mistake about this, the uh, symbolism involved in a decision which says Jerusalem, Israel, would to some extent commit the United States to the position that the Israelis have control over Jerusalem and that their claims are exclusive relative to those of the Palestinians. So they issue in this particular case is we can't bind the president's hands in this particular way. Uh, it then becomes a bit more complicated on this side, uh, because what you then do is you start looking into the system of uniform practice. And what you see here is what you often see in international relationships. Presidents of both parties are completely resolute in their determination uh, to make sure that they keep this um, power for themselves. Congress is always of two minds on the way in which it goes. And so uh, when Justice Kennedy goes through the history, he says emphatic and consistent assertion of power wins, and these sort of um, evanescent and, and indecisive claims on the other side can't win. So he puts it in that way. He does not, however, want to go as far as might be done. There is a very well-known case called Curtis Wright, um, in which the claims of presidential power over foreign affairs taken by Justice Sutherland were of inordinate length. I mean, they're just extremely broad, um, saying that he could do anything he wants in foreign affairs in any way, shape, or form, and the Congress be damned. Well, the case didn't support that particular conclusion, because in that instance, it had to do with a, an insurrection in a militia in South America. Uh, Roosevelt actually had been given explicit power by Congress to handle the thing unilaterally, so the question didn't come up. And it turns out that in an odd sense, Justice Kennedy, as he expands the control over the passport, actually probably narrows the full range of control that the president has on the other side. 
the dissent, the Thomas dissent is a kind of an arcane issue as to whether or not you have the power to issue the passport or whether you have certain kind of consular powers. It's not really, I think, worth talking about here. The, the two opinions that matter, I think, much more are the Roberts dissent and the Scalia dissent. And it's very hard to go into them in great length, but essentially uh, what happens is there's a constitutional framework uh, of some complexity which came in the Youngstown Steel case in which you're trying to figure out presidential power against a grid. If Congress authorizes, it said Justice Jackson and his famous consent, and the president is free to go. If the Congress um, is silent on it, then you've got to figure out one way or another whether it's authorized. But if our Congress has forbidden it, then the president's power is at its low ebb. And the position of both Justices Roberts and Scalia is this is a case in which Congress has forbidden it. It has never been the case that the president has actually been able to overcome one of these things. This is a case, therefore, in which the system of checks and balances ought to prevail over the notion of inherent presidential authority. And so what you ought to do is to strike this down. Now, the puzzling thing about this, and I'll stop on this note, is where is Congress's power over this particular issue? Uh, it seems to me it is genuinely fair to say that there is no clear location of most of the powers dealing with immigration, nationalization, and the whole stuff in the Constitution. And what you can do is you can look in two places here. You can argue that this somehow or other relates to foreign commerce, and I've got to tell you that sounds something like a stretch to me. Or you could say it has to do with naturalization, but naturalization isn't issuing passports to American citizens. Naturalization is taking people who are not citizens of the United States and finding a way in which you shall make them into citizens. Indeed, it was a stretch in the 19th century to say that the federal government could control immigration through its naturalization power because the two things are rather different in terms of the way in which they operate. Uh, so the reason why the case is so difficult is there is no clear textual warrant on either side. And what you'll do is you will see, therefore, the battle going in ultimate terms. Irwin is going to talk in a second, and he's going to talk about the importance of separation of powers. And when he's done, I'm going to talk about the situation saying, frankly, I'm not really quite sure of what's going on. I wish Irwin were right, but I'm not sure that he is. Excellent. Well, thank you for that uh, sophisticated and thorough summary of these uh, fascinating and complicated opinions. Irwin, you have written an op-ed uh, saying that the Supreme Court lost sight of the importance of checks and balances in the Zivotofsky case. You said, as Chief Justice John Roberts lamented in his dissent, this is the first time in American history that the Supreme Court has ever allowed the president to defy an act of Congress in the field of foreign affairs. Tell us why, on constitutional grounds, you agree with Chief Justice Roberts. First, Chief Justice Roberts makes the point that this isn't the case about the recognition power at all. Justice Kennedy's opinion, as Richard rightly points out, is based on the premise that the president alone gets to decide whether to recognize a foreign government. That arises in the context we have two different factions in a country, each with their power, and the president decides who the United States is going to recognize. That's not what this is about. This is about what people get to designate on their passports. Justice Scalia, I thought, persuasively said, and I quote, nobody suggests that international custom infers acceptance of sovereignty from the birthplace designation on a passport or birth report. Also, as Justice Scalia points out, traditionally, Congress has regulated passports. Richard is right that the Constitution is silent, but the Constitution is silent about so many things, and this is a power that's always been one that Congress asserted. But most of all, I believe that the case is troubling because it accepts the idea 
of unchecked and uncheckable executive power. Curtis Wright, which Richard points to, was different because there it was Congress authorizing a presidential action. Here, it's Congress prohibiting a particular executive action or directing an executive action, saying people should be able to list their passports as Jerusalem. And as Chief Justice Roberts says, this is the first time in history that the Supreme Court has declared unconstitutional a federal statute that limits the executive in foreign affairs. I think that originalist arguments are always suspect. But if one was to try to figure out what did the framers intend with regard to separation of powers, it's, they rejected unchecked executive power. They drafted a constitution that believed in checks and balances and wanted to avoid the possibility of abuses that they witnessed in a king who was not constrained. So I don't often get to say this, but I think the conservatives on the court, Roberts and Scalia and Alito, got it right. No one, including the president, is above the law. The court should have held the federal statute allowing Americans born in Jerusalem to choose the designation on their passport. Wonderful. Well, this is a great example of our nonpartisan podcast, and we're all waiting on bated, with bated breath to see Richard's response. Uh, Richard, uh, the court, like Irwin, said that the majority opinion uh, created, in Justice Scalia's words, a presidency more reminiscent of George III than George Washington. And Justice Scalia also said that this was essentially a functional analysis based on the court's idea that the nation had to speak with one voice. And this functional analysis will systematically favor the unitary president over the plural Congress in foreign affairs. Uh, do you agree with the majority or the dissent? As I said, I, you know, I'm genuinely at sea with respect to this one. Um, let me see if I can give what some of the arguments are. And then I, that, when I may make up my mind by the time I finish talking aloud. But the, the first point about this is, that, first of all, it is not the case that the president has the exclusive power to deal with foreign affairs. I mean, get the one obvious point. The president may be the only party who's entitled to negotiate treaties with foreign governments, but none of those treaties take effect unless they are ratified by the Senate. Um, and, you know, that's a very kind of different view of foreign policy. And if you actually look at the debates over the fast track um, uh, trade regulations in the in the Far East and so forth, it's the president going to the Congress and say, please give me the following authority to negotiate these things and bind yourself to only give an up or down vote on this stuff once the thing goes through, because if we allow it to be subject to conditions one way or another, the thing will never make its way through. Well, this is clearly a very important area of foreign affairs, and it's clearly a case in which the Constitution uh, divides the power between the president and the Senate, and the House of Representatives has nothing to do with it. Uh, Justice Scalia points out that there eight of the clauses contained in Article I, Section uh, 3, dealing with presidential powers, deal with foreign affairs. Uh, he's cheating a little bit because a large fraction of those start to deal with questions about war. And it's quite clear that that, at least at the present, is not what's at stake here. He then cites the necessary proper clause, and that doesn't solve the problem either, because one of the things that it does is it gives Congress all the necessary and proper powers, whatever those words exactly mean, but it does the same thing for the president and all of the departments. And so each side in a battle against the other can say, hey, oh, it's necessary and proper for our situation. 
I think the strongest argument on the other side is it's always been done this particular way, and everybody seems to have acquiesced in it, to which Erwin would say, I think quite sensibly, uh, it's one thing to have a practice in the absence of a statute. It's another thing to have a practice which you continue in the presence of a statute. And so what happens is the majority has to make this kind of estoppel argument. You guys have acquiesced in this in so long uh, that the thing has become hardened into a prescriptive norm of some sort, so we have to do it. Uh, so Irwin is right to say, you know, he's suspect of originalism. I'm a great fan of originalism at some level. Uh, but both of us agree this is a case in which the original problem here is that the cooperation arrangements between the two branches of government are not nearly spelled out well enough for anybody to make some kind of conclusive judgment on it. And if I had to come down, I guess, you know, listening to all of this stuff and going on, um, it seems to me that on the balance, I think that the separation of powers arguments and the checks and balances are, I think, appropriate. Uh, the question I'm going to ask about this, and I think it's one that Erwin pointed to, is suppose we decided this case the way the Zivotofskis want to. Is that going to compromise the president's commander-in-chief power? Or which he's not a power, but his ability to act as commander-in-chief in times of war, or to deal with other governments in various kinds of face-to-face -face negotiations. And I guess the answer that I have to that question is no. I think, first of all, on the political side, uh, there is a lot of reluctance to mess up presidential activities, and uh, therefore it seems to me that we should not panic over much. Uh, but the other thing is that this is actually, let me just mention this one point, What's very interesting about this is this is going to have some, I think, profound influence on the way we start thinking about the war powers and the various authorizations. What does the president have to get from Congress to expand or continue or to contract the operations against ISIS in the Middle East? That's something which is right now right on the front of the table. And if you start seeing uh, a case like Zivotofsky giving a general expansion of the inherent powers of the presidency, it may well shift the power of the debate on that particular issue, in which, again, I am not a great champion of presidential powers. I disagree with Congress's policies on virtually everything having to do with the war. But I do think that the checks and balances model there is much more explicit and has to be given a great deal more respect. Great. Well, Erwin, maybe you can answer uh, Richard's excellent question. He says, uh, he, he asks, what will the practical consequences of this opinion be? Although the majority opinion rejected Justice Thomas's broad view of unitary executive authority, saying that Article II vests the president with unenumerated powers in foreign affairs, Richard suggests that the opinion may in fact be invoked by future presidents to justify unilateral action. Uh, tell us whether or not you agree and what you think the consequences of the opinion will be for the war on terror. Again, I don't often get to say this, but I think Richard is absolutely right. The underlying issue here is of profound importance. Can a statute that's properly passed by Congress and signed by the president control an aspect of foreign policy? Repeatedly over the last few decades, both Democratic and Republican presidents have claimed that statutes that control their actions in foreign policy are unconstitutional. During the Reagan presidency, Congress passed a statute, it's called the Bolin Amendment, that prevented the federal government from using any funds to help the Contras in Nicaragua. President Reagan claimed that this was an unconstitutional limit on his power. In fact, a Wyoming congressman, Dick Cheney, wrote a very famous report about how Congress, by statute, can't limit the president in foreign policy. Infamously, during the Bush administration, a memo was written by two Justice Department officials, Jay Bybee, now a federal court of appeals judge, and John Yu, 
now a law professor at University of California, Berkeley, arguing that the president didn't need to comply with the statutes and treaties that prohibited torture. Both Democratic and Republican presidents have claimed that the War Powers Resolution, was a federal statute adopted by Congress in 1973, is unconstitutional. It requires that the president inform Congress of the use of troops in a battle situation in a foreign country, and requires that troops withdrawn if there's not congressional approval within 60 days. And I think yesterday's decision could be used by presidents in all of these areas to say that a statute checking presidential power is unconstitutional. And I think that's a very dangerous precedent. To me, the genius of the Constitution is it usually should take two branches of government to do anything. And the idea that the president has unchecked and uncheckable power, I think, is inconsistent with the very structure of the Constitution. Richard, on this, on, maybe on, the, on, uh, on, on this point, can you help us understand the lineup here? Uh, usually we think of conservative justices as champions of broad executive power and liberals as the opposite. Here, things were flipped. Only Justice Thomas took the broad vision of unitary executive authority. Why was it that Chief Justice Roberts and Justices uh, Alito and Scalia uh, embraced a more constrained vision of the foreign affairs power? My guess is that they're actually trying to be consistent with their general jurisprudence. Um, uh, they have long insisted that the Constitution is one of divided authority, enumerated powers. Uh, remember that they were the guys who dissented in the Affordable Care case. They didn't think that the commerce power went far enough to allow the federal government to take over this issue. They had some doubts about the taxing power, but wrote terrible opinions sustaining that. And, and so what I do is I see them as saying, essentially, we believe in the original plan. And even though the particulars of this particular case are not fleshed out in that plan, they're doing what Irwin wants them to do, which is when you see cases where you know their interstices, you fill them in in accordance with the general philosophy that animated the Constitution as a whole. And if that philosophy turns out to be one of separation of powers, then you start looking to see if there's anything in the text which is a trump that stops it. Um, I agree with you that the power to receive ambassadors uh, doesn't come within a country mind of doing that. And indeed, in the Federalist Papers, Hamilton himself said, it's not a power issue, it's a combination of courtesy and convenience and all sorts of other stuff. Who is supposed to receive them? It can't be the Congress, it's not going to be the janitor, so it might as well be the president. Um, and, you know, that seems to me to be the correct thing. Now, what's going on on the other side? You know, I think it's actually a, a different view, and it's one that I'm strongly opposed to in principle, which is the unitary power is liked in many cases by liberals, because what it does is it facilitates the expansion of the, um, of the administrative state. Uh, you don't have all these pesky checks and balances. Uh, you can delegate all of these issues down to an independent agency, give it very broad powers of one sort or another. Nobody in Congress can check it thereafter. The president, in effect, can uh, control those agencies in some cases, or in many cases they operate independently of him, and, only, and he can't even remove those people. Uh, but the progressives tend to be favor of form vigorous government. So if you want to see the uh, contrast here, what you do is you have a man like Irwin now sounding like um, 
James Madison, and you have the liberals sounding much more like Woodrow Wilson. Um, and that's why this is such a great case, because there's no textual knockdown argument. There's a kind of a general maxim you apply in constitutional interpretation, which I think cuts against what Justice Scalia said, which is if you find powers in six places, it means that you found them in none. Uh, because you just keep on saying this is in the penumbra of this or near that. If you really had one very strong argument, you would drop the other five. If you don't have it, you sort of hope maybe five weak claims equal to one strong claim. And that's what's going on in this particular case. Uh, but I think the long-term implications are very serious. Now, let me just mention one other thing about the, uh, where I may agree and disagree with John, uh, rather with, with Irwin. I thought that to the extent that the president asserted through these various memos that he could ignore the Geneva Conventions and all of the statutes was one of the most dangerous maneuvers in the history of American constitutionalism. Um, one of the things I like to say, if you look at Federalist 69, uh, nobody says there's a commander-in-chief power, including Alexander Hamilton. He says quite clearly that uh, the president of the United States is much inferior to either the king of England or the governor of New York State. Um, what this is is a role, and he can't even call up the militia unless Congress is going to do it. So come on, don't give me all of those kinds of power. But on the other hand, the War Powers Resolution, as it eventually became called, is actually very complicated, because when it says that Congress has the power to declare war, it's not even clear that that's legislation. I mean, just, just declares a war, does it need a presidential signature? Not obvious. Um, when you start looking at the text to try to figure out what's going on. And if it turns out Congress only has the power to declare war, can it then, over a presidential veto, not only deal with the declaration of law, but with the full-time over, oversight and superintendence of what's going on? It, that's also kind of tricky. It does have the power to regulate certain kinds of activities relating to the armed forces. Is that large enough to do it? It's really a very gray area. And presidents have, I think, Erwin could correct me, but uh, have consistently ignored the War Powers Act. Um, they did it in uh, Kosovo, I believe, and they also did it, if I'm not mistaken, in Libya. Erwin, am I wrong? I'm going to ask Erwin to answer your provocative question as well as to accept the highest compliment you can offer, which is to compare him to James Madison. But before I do that, I have to read the exciting mid-roll ad. So here we go. Uh, many of our great listeners are listening to the We the People podcast because you have a hunger for constitutional education. You're eager to learn more about how the Constitution affects our lives today and its historic sources. These are some of the topics that I worked on in a thrilling course done in collaboration with the great courses. Uh, it was called Privacy, Property, and Free Speech, Law and the Constitution in the 21st Century, and gosh, I had a great time doing it. There are really exciting questions like, can the government fly drones over us and track us 24-7 from door to door? How to protect free speech in an age when Google and Facebook have more power over who can speak and who can be heard than any king or president or Supreme Court justice and other thrilling topics. So I'm obviously a fan of the great courses, and please check them out. And in particular, check out the wonderful course, Privacy, Property, and Free Speech. There are over 500 courses and a lot of subjects, and The Great Courses has created this, this great limited-time offer for We the People listeners. If you order from eight of The Great Courses' best-selling courses, including, most excitingly, Privacy, Property, and Free Speech, at up to 80% off the original price, don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash people. That's thegreatcourses.com slash people. Okay, thanks for listening to that ad. And now uh, we've been waiting with bated breath. Erwin, uh, Richard has called you 
uh, uh, James Madison, and he said that the liberals on the court are Woodrow Wilson progressives who want to expand the administrative state. Do you agree with his assessment about what is motivating them? I'm not sure what's motivating them in this case. There are so many places where the Constitution is silent about presidential power. Can a president assert executive privilege and keep secret memoranda with or conversations with advisors? Can the president remove cabinet officials? Can the president seize the steel mills in war? What's the president's power to recognize foreign governments? The Constitution doesn't speak to any of these. And I think that the best framework is that the president can assert powers in these areas so long as the president doesn't usurp the powers or interfere with the powers of another branch of government. That's what the Supreme Court said in United States versus Nixon, the Watergate tapes case. At the very least, I think, the president should be able to exercise power in these areas where the Constitution is silent until and unless Congress limits that power. That was the position of both Justices Jackson and Frankfurter in the Steele seizure case. Here in Zivotofsky, Congress did act to limit presidential power, and the court took the position of unchecked and uncheckable power. In answer to Richard's question with regard to the War Powers Resolution, he's right. All presidents since Richard Nixon have explicitly or implicitly said they believe the War Powers Resolution is unconstitutional. Presidents have generally complied with the disclosure requirements about the use of troops in war situations, though often saying they didn't believe that it was constitutional to make them do so. But some presidents have not complied with the provisions to require withdrawal of troops unless Congress approves them. So President Clinton did not comply with this with regard to the bombing of Kosovo. A lawsuit had been filed by a California congressman, Tom Campbell, but it was dismissed by the First Circuit on political question grounds. And more recently, with regard to the use of troops in Libya, the Obama administration took the position it wasn't really a war situation, though it sure, by all indicia, looked like and seemed like a war. <laughs> you have to understand why it wasn't a war. We were shooting at them, but they couldn't shoot back at us. Excellent. Well, I think with that, uh, we will give you uh, the last word on Zivotofsky. Gentlemen, this was a fascinating, uh, rich, and uh, unexpected constitutional debate. And uh, thank you very much for engaging it. We're now going to turn to our second topic, which is a big case that the court will decide in the next few weeks. It's called Texas Department of Housing and Community Affairs versus the Inclusive Communities Project. And the question is whether disparate impact claims are recognized by the Fair Housing Act. Richard, first of all, what are disparate impact claims? Can you give us a brief summary of the case? Why is it that 11 U.S. Courts of Appeals have ruled that violations of the Fair Housing Act can be established through this disparate impact standard of proof? And why are the challengers saying that this is an incorrect reading of the law? Well, this is actually, again, one of these issues in which three words carry with them enormous degree of potential significance. The Fair Housing Act was passed in 1968. It was passed four years after the Civil Rights Act. And what it did, in effect, was to uh, incorporate that kind of language with respect to housing that had been done with respect to employment. And it said it is improper for any private party uh, to discriminate against any person because of race. And the same thing would be true of any public party in terms of the way in which it operates. In the employment context, the original 
understanding of this rule, I think, at the time it was passed, was that the cost of meant a motivational test in which you had to show that an employer actually intended to use race as a test. And what they were then worried about is what's going to happen if an employer really wants to use race uh, but conceals it by giving them some neutral facade for this. And the basic attitude, I think, at the time was that you can probe underneath the facade and find the intentionality uh, because statements of good faith um, are not going to be conclusive on the courts but can be challenged. Uh, This interpretation then gets quickly transformed in 1971. That's three years after the Fair Housing Act gets passed in a case called Griggs against Duke Power in which Justice... um, Chief Justice Berger announces that if you use a test in a way that gives it um, a disparate impact, then in effect you have to justify it by some form of business necessity, which is going to be extremely difficult to do. And so all of a sudden, Duke Power transforms an intense statute into one in which you only look at the result about the way in which things are going. And business necessity is almost impossible to overcome. In the fair housing law, what happens is the same transformation takes place. The because of race language now becomes something which is supposed to deal with effects rather than to deal with motivations. And 11 circuit courts, essentially following the lead in the Greeks case, have carried it over into this particular context. But of course what happens is it's then extremely complicated because trying to figure out what's going on under these circumstances is in fact much more difficult than some of these housing settings than it is anywhere else. Um, And so what happens is when you start to get to Texas-inclusive communities, it's a set of facts which is most unattractive for the challenges, highly attractive for the state. And the question is, how much do the particulars of this case going to influence the overall judgment? What happens is there's a government program at the federal level which is designed to improve the amount of money for low-income taxpayers. And it turns out this statute's an absolute administrative nightmare in terms of the various tests and requirements that it has, so-called above-the-line tests, below-the-line tests, and all the rest of this stuff. And what happens is these guys are trying to run compliance with this, and they come up with a program in which you could then prove that a larger fraction, not much of a larger fraction, 10% larger, of these uh, low-income housing programs are put into black neighborhoods as opposed to white neighborhoods, to which the obvious answer is, if you actually follow the criterion relating to wealth, you would expect poorer communities, which are mainly minority, to get more of these projects. It sounds like they're doing their job. Uh, but the district court judge, what he said is, I just don't see that you can use because of language to get to this particular result. Rather, he said you can, but, sorry, I got it wrong. The district court judge essentially said, yeah, and I'm going to impose a very extensive structural injunction, which means all sorts of oversights and reviews to make sure that this money is fairly allocated between neighborhoods. And the 11th Circuit looking at this thing says, no, I, I want you to look at this harder take it back again. Supreme Court, after ducking this issue in several earlier cases, now taking it up. If you look at it, it's strictly as a matter of the way in which the analogous statute has been interpreted. I think it's likely that the uh, claim of the department, uh, the government housing department, will win in this case. If you look at it as a textual matter, 
I think it would probably come out the other way and should come out the other way. If you look at it as an administrative matter and see the tripartite test that they want to impose, nobody in his right mind would ever want to have that kind of a situation. Finding disparate impact in a complicated housing market is crazy. Figuring out what your justifications are is really difficult because you have all of these mandates that you have to comply with. And then the third part of the test under the HUD regulations is could you have found a less restrictive way uh, to do the same thing, um, which means that you then have to consider an array of alternatives that nobody understands. And so what may well influence the Supreme Court in this case is that the administrative demands that are going to be required to run a disparate impact program through HUD's regulation are going to be nightmarish, and they may say, we should really want to do this at all, but then they have to face their own basic problem, which is normally on issues like this, the government is highly deferential to administrative agencies in the way in which they construe their own statutes. Great. Okay. Uh, Erwin, maybe we'll get some uh, disagreement between you and Richard on the underlying merits of this case. Uh, Why is it that this statute, which, as Richard said, has been interpreted by 11 courts of appeals to allow disparate impact uh, and uh, uh, interpreted when Congress amended the Fair Housing Act in 1988 to include a series of exceptions that, as Justice Scalia said at the oral argument, might kill your case? He said that to the challengers because they seem to anticipate disparate impact. Why is it that this case is even before the court at all? Is it basically because of the claim that uh, some justices think that disparate impact analysis is unconstitutional because it requires race-conscious decision-making? Or is there something else going on here? And how do you think the case should be resolved? I do disagree with Richard here a great deal. It is very difficult to prove discriminatory intent. It's hard to show that any decision-maker had the purpose of discriminating based on race. That's why it's so important in all contexts to allow liability when they're showing that a practice leads to a disparate impact based on race. The Griggs case, which Richard refers to, was a unanimous Supreme Court decision that said there can be disparate impact liability under Title VII in the area of employment discrimination. The court was unanimous about this because the statutory language in its legislative history indicated that Congress wanted to allow disparate impact liability, not just requiring proof of a discriminatory intent. The Fair Housing Act was adopted after the Supreme Court's decision in Griggs, the language that we're talking about here. There's every indication that Congress had in mind that it wanted to have the same interpretation that applied with regard to Title VII. That's why every United States Court of Appeals to rule has said that disparate impact liability is permitted under the Fair Housing Act. Now, you ask the question, why is the Supreme Court taking this up? Richard said the Supreme Court had ducked the issue previously. That's not correct. Twice before the Supreme Court had granted cert on this issue, only for the parties to settle in those cases, especially because the civil rights community didn't want the Supreme Court to face the issue. The Roberts Court has generally been hostile to civil rights claims, especially civil rights claims based on race. And the civil rights community worries that the Roberts Court might then be hostile to disparate impact claims here, notwithstanding every circuit allowing them. And Jeff, you rightly point to what could make this case even more significant. Certainly it's important in itself in terms of housing discrimination, but Justice Scalia has implied the position that he views 
that all disparate impact liability violates equal protection. He indicated this in a concurring opinion in 2009 in Ritchie versus City of New Haven. He said that he believes that the Constitution requires that there be colorblindness. He says disparate impact liability requires that decision makers consider race so as to avoid disparate impact liability. He says the consideration of race seems to violate the Constitution. That's why at oral argument, Justice Scalia said the statute seems clear in light of its history in requiring disparate impact liability suffice, but he also indicated real concern about whether or not this would be constitutional. Thanks so much for that. Well, Richard, uh, tell us your view about whether or not disparate impact analysis is, in fact, uh, a violation of the Constitution, and how do you think the justices will rule on this? Well, I mean, Lord knows this is a, a very large can of worms when we're going on. But essentially on these issues, actually, my positions differ from both Irwin on the one hand and from uh, the uh, Scalia-Roberts wing of the Supreme Court on the other. So let me try to go back a little bit to first principles and see how we can put this up. I think the fundamental distinction that one must make in trying to understand the Constitution is to recognize that a government operates in two particular ways. One, I think it operates as the manager of certain kinds of operations. In housing, it could be public housing projects or making grants to various parties. Or it operates as though it's a regulator and an enforcement of the civil or the criminal law. And I think, in fact, the appropriate constitutional standards with respect to race and race-conscious behaviors differ very much between these two contexts. Um, if you're running a school system and you have to decide whether or not you want to have busing or whether or not you want to have integrated classrooms or whether you want to have affirmative action programs, what I think of this is as a management decision. And I start looking at private businesses, and I would ask how they would resolve these questions. And virtually every one of them, in some way, shape, or form or another, would like to have some kind of race-conscious decision in the way in which it puts together. You can't find a private university or a private school today, which essentially on this particular issue thinks that the colorblind rules are going to work and to work well. And to the extent that they're acting in good faith, it seems to me that they have to be given the discretion on the public side to do what their private competitors are going to be able to do. And so when it comes to the question as to whether or not, for example, a housing project can decide to take race into account, uh, say, to preserve racial balance within a project, I'm willing to allow them to do it. There was a case some years ago called Starrett City in which the issue was whether or not you can control by race the numbers of people coming into a private development uh, in order to combat the risk of white flight, given the tipping point that sometimes happens in these areas. Um, after an anguished discussion, the Second Circuit said you couldn't do it, and I think they were wrong. I think under these circumstances, good motives and everything else means that if you're going to get better outcomes by taking race into account, you ought to be able uh, to do it. Um, this is not a question of invidious distinction. This is a question of good management. If it were to enforce the criminal law, I think it would be utterly outrageous for somebody to say, well, you have to prove that a black person uh, committed burglary uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, but for a white person you could do it simply by a bare preponderance of the evidence. I think on the enforcement side, the colorblind norm is really one of extreme importance. So now where does this particular case come in? Here the government is trying to give all sorts of monies out for all sorts of purposes, and it seems to me they've got to be given some degree of discretion. I would even give them discretion in order to take race into account um, on trying to figure out how these programs go. But in this particular case, 
the reason you're just completely dubious of any claim that there is some hidden discrimination going on there is that the government is all over this thing in the way in which this is being regulated. So in the Griggs case, you are genuinely worried about whether or not an old Southern utility was using a graduate equivalence test as a kind of a smoke thing to perpetuate discrimination. In this particular case, you're not. And the one other case that I would mention in this circumstance is a very unfortunate decision, in my view, called Connecticut against Teal, in which Justice uh, Brennan, making things up out of whole cloth, essentially said that you could bring an individual suit for disparate impact against an institution, the state of Connecticut, which had a consistent bona fide and long-term affirmative action program. And if the concern is trying to figure out how you smoke out hidden discrimination, you don't have much of a concern of Connecticut as a state doing that back in the late 1970s when these events happened to take place. So I think, in effect, that Griggs is wildly over-concerned with the problem, which fortunately doesn't exist nearly as much. And even if you want to do this um, and smoke it out, even under the invidious discrimination test or intentional discrimination test, you can still challenge the motives in question. But if you were to take that and try to do this in the Texas case of inclusive communities, where everybody is working overtime to comply with various kinds of federal mandates, the idea that there is some hidden discrimination in the way in which these Texas officials are launching their program is at best ludicrous. Other cases, it's actually a more serious kind of question um, as to what's going on because you don't have this vice being put in by other kinds of government programs. So I think, in effect, uh, the likely output in this particular situation is you will place such constraints on this and similar programs that you will do more to wreck the housing markets. I might just add, and it wasn't a race-based decision, but when the Mount Laurel folks decided that they were going to create fair share housing for poor people inside the state of New Jersey, it introduced an administrative nightmare uh, 40 years ago, which is yet to be fully resolved today. We don't have to go down that road, and getting rid of the uh, as it were, the disparate impact test in the housing cases, and leaving it, if you like, and I'm opposed to it in the employment cases, I think would be a very important forward step. Great. Well, Erwin, we're going to give the last word in this absolutely fascinating uh, debate to you. Uh, what do you think would happen if the court uh, did, in fact, uh, banish the disparate impact reading of the Fair Housing Act, and how would that affect not only housing discrimination, but other cases uh, involving race consciousness down the line. I go back to what I said earlier. It is so difficult to prove discriminatory intent. Rarely will decision makers express racism or sexism. We're thankfully past that point. But we know that racism and sexism and unconscious bias are often there. We know that government actions often have a discriminatory impact on the basis of race. And so that's why it's so important that disparate impact liability be there, that we not just require proof of discriminatory intent. If the Supreme Court holds that disparate impact liability is not allowed on the Fair Housing Act, it will be much harder to deal with housing segregation, much harder to deal with discrimination in housing. And if the Supreme Court holds that disparate impact liability is not allowed here, it could certainly raise problems with regard to disparate impact liability under Title VII or under the Voting Rights Act Amendments of 1982. And I think Richard makes a very persuasive case where race needs to be considered in many contexts. I think the same arguments that he makes for that are why there has to be disparate impact liability. We've got to remember is 
The disparate impact liability isn't something new. It's been around under Title VII since 1971. Every circuit has recognized it under the Fair Housing Act. Richard points to administrative problems with disparate impact liability, but to a large extent, they haven't been manifest. And in fact, disparate impact liability has served as an important check preventing a great deal of discrimination. This is an enormously important case in terms of civil rights in the United States. Thank you, Erwin Chemerinsky and Richard Epstein, for an unusually rich, illuminating, and constitutionally challenging discussion of two of the most important cases of the Supreme Court term. Next week, we will continue our constitutional drumbeat to the end of June, where we ask members of our Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board to debate and illuminate the constitutional arguments behind these great cases. You'll find all this and more on our We the People podcast. You can find us on iTunes and learn more at constitutioncenter.org. That means please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.